chapter 3. Uh, Lord willing, we want to try to uh, finish uh, this third chapter in only um, three messages. Uh, today, got a lot to cover. Uh, Lord willing, the last ten verses. Uh, every song, I think, today, and um, either they're getting really good at being theologians, these guys, or uh, the Lord is just aligning these songs with the themes that are going to uh, come out in our text today. So we've been going through the book of Acts. In chapter number 3, Peter and John are on their way to the temple, and there's a, a lame man. He's never walked a day in his life. He's 40-something years old. He asked them for some money, but they don't have any money to give him. But Peter says, what I do have, I'll give to you. And what we just sang about, the power in the name, he tells this lame man again, cripple. Everybody knows he's there all the time. Peter says to the lame man, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he reached down his hand, and the man took his hand. And while he was on his way up, his feet and ankle bones were strengthened. And he stood, and he walked. He begins running and leaping, and he's praising God. And we want to remember this. His changed life, his clearly changed life, just drew a crowd of people. And people start thronging to Peter and John because this guy is so thankful. He's clinging to them. He's so grateful for what has happened. His life has totally changed. And his changed life, again, is drawing a massive crowd. No doubt, at least hundreds, probably we're talking about thousands of people under this covered porch area in the temple. And so Peter sees a problem. Problem number one, everybody's looking at him and John as if they've done this. And he lets them know real quick, it's not us. This is not us. God has honored his servant, Jesus, and it's power in the name of Christ that has healed this man whom you all know. Again, this man laid every day at the gate called Beautiful. You all know him. And you see the change. This is not fake. This is real. There's power, and so Peter launches into this message about the power in the name of Christ. But in that, again, you'll not see it on the screen, but in verses 13, 14, and 15, Peter accuses his audience, and this is a very specific message. If Peter was standing here today, he would not have preached this message to you because this message was specific to this group of people. He tells these, he says, You men of Israel, you have denied the holy and the just one. You denied this great servant of God in the presence of Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate wanted to let Christ go, but you would have none of it. And again, we dug into that a little bit a couple of weeks ago. What Peter is saying is, hey, in essence, I'm reading between the lines, I know your leaders, your leaders are at fault and they've sinned greatly. And we know what they've done for months and weeks in advance opposing Jesus and what they did in the night that night. That Good Friday where we're going to pray this year represents this day 2,000 years ago. And so Peter in essence is saying, yes, your leaders committed great sin in the night by arresting Jesus in their crooked version of some wicked trial. But when they brought him to the Roman governor, that was your chance as as the people of Israel to shout to let Jesus go. But instead, when given a choice by Pilate between a murderer to go loose on your streets or Jesus, the compassionate, sinless healer to go loose on your streets, you ask for a murderer and you ask for Jesus to be crucified. You have killed the author of life. And so Peter's pulling no punches. I mean, he is letting them know about their specific sin. And with that, would you join me in verse 17? Let's read down to verse 26. So having just told them, they killed the Christ. You're responsible. Again, pulling no punches. Now, verse 17, Peter says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. 
as did also your rulers. Let that sink in. We're going to, most of the message today is really going to have this flavor and this constant pressure of verses 17, 18, and 19. It's going to flow throughout. Verse 17 again. And now, brother, he, I mean, he's just nailed them with their sin. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. I know you didn't know what, you were clueless. You had no clue what you were doing. You wouldn't have done it if you did. He says the same as for your rulers. Verse 18, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets. What did God foretell by the mouth of his prophets? That his Christ would suffer. You didn't know what you were doing. You acted in ignorance. But God, what God foretold in advance by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Watch. He fulfilled. So Peter's just nailed them for their sin. And now he says, well, wait, who's responsible for the death of Christ? God foretold all these things in advance because he foreordained these things. And so who's responsible for the death of Christ? Is it them in verses 13, 14, 15, 17? But now you finish verse 18 by saying, He, God, thus fulfilled. And there's a blend there, and I'm going to hope you'll catch the word thus in a few minutes because I believe the word thus is key. Now verse 19. So you're ignorant, but God foretold it, and He fulfilled it thus. Verse 19. Repent. Repent is Peter's call. This is the gist. This is the point of the message. Repent. We talked about that just a few weeks ago because he preached a similar message in Acts chapter 2. We'll not go into that word as deeply today, but it, hopefully it falls in your mind. Repent. And notice the word therefore. Think about that. What does the word therefore mean? You were ignorant. You didn't know. Listen, you committed the worst sin that's ever been committed, but you didn't know you were doing it. Repent. Therefore. You see what he's saying? Are you already getting it? Is your mind already there? Are you ahead of me? Is your mind already saying this? What's the therefore? Why is he saying repent therefore? You are ignorant. But they can't claim ignorance anymore. Repent therefore because I just told you about your sin. Acknowledging that you were ignorant, you're no longer ignorant. So repent now. And that's the pro proper response they should have. Well, what will happen? Verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back. Turn back. If you've been going this direction in sin, well, don't just stop as if that's enough. No, turn back to God. If you've been going, and I didn't even know it. Jeff, I didn't even know. The Bible was saying that this was wrong. I've been doing this with my whole life. I've been going down this path. I've been making these decisions, heading to this goal. Okay, when you learn it is sin, Peter says, turn. And go back to the Lord. Because Israel, you're away from God. You're away. You think you're the people of God. You think you're, you're here having just celebrated the, the Passover and then the Pentecost. And now here sometime after. You guys are very religious, but you're so far away from God. You didn't even see what you were doing. Repent, therefore, and turn back. Okay, great. What will happen? Verse 19. That your sins may be blotted out. That your sins. Repent. That your sins may be blotted out. That the times of refreshing, as Stephen read of this in Revelation 21, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Again, I want you to look at that phrase. I'm, I'm, I'm parceling this out. I don't know the full answer here. You chew on it. 
You need to chew on verses 17, 18, and 19 at home this week. That the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. From the presence. Does that mean the Lord is in heaven and Israel, if you'll repent about what you've done to this man Jesus, who's the Christ, then God will waft down from his presence. He'll waft it down and here comes refreshing from the presence of the Lord, from the throne. Here it comes. Here comes the refreshing. Does it mean that or does it mean more than that? Does it mean he will send times of refreshing from his presence? Is it his presence that brings, I will not send it, I'll bring it. Is that the idea? Verse 20. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Catch that phrase. If you'll do this, Israel, God will send to you the Christ, the, not a Christ, the Christ that's been appointed for you. Well, who is the Christ appointed for us? Jesus. Can I get ahead of myself? You guys already know where Israel stands in regard as a whole. There are individual Jews who believe differently. But as a whole, they don't accept Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. Peter tells them plainly, you will repent. You must repent when you do These things will happen. These dominoes will fall. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That he may send the Christ, the Christ appointed for you. Jesus. We want a different one. No. Jesus. Whom heaven must receive. Whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring. All the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Second time these prophets are mentioned now. Verse 18, they prophesied about this suffering. And now we're told that the prophets prophesied about this refreshing and this restoration that's coming. And then Peter gives an example. So pay attention as we come down the home stretch because Peter's message is going to be interrupted at the beginning of chapter 4. And that's why there's a chapter break there. Kind of finishes before he finishes. But The damage is done as far as his enemies because the word is already getting out to these Jews. Can you give us an example of some of these prophecies? Verse 22, Moses said, so now he's taking them back to Deuteronomy 18. Peter's preaching to these people and they're familiar with this passage. He says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Moses says, he'll be like me from your brothers. It's going to be from among you. There's going to be this prophet. He's going to be like me. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. Whatever he says, whatever he says, you do what he says. Verse 23. And it shall be that every... What if we don't want to listen to it? It shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Israel, you reject this prophet that is like me. And there's going to be a high price to pay individually, nationally. And oh, Israel has paid a high price. But now he finishes by saying, it's not just Moses, it's not like one spot. And all the prophets who have spoken, some spoke only, some spoke and wrote. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel, Moses the first greatest prophet of you, but then Samuel and then all the others after that. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. They also, they all told about the suffering and the restoration and the refreshing. 
And he finishes by telling them how privileged they are. Men of Israel, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made. This, again, would not be the message Peter would preach to us today. But he says to this crowd, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham. So here's what God made a covenant with Abraham, and God made a promise to Abraham that goes along these lines. Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. All the families. This reminds us of Revelation 7, verses 8 and 9, when every family that is on earth, every language, every tribe, every tongue is represented there around the throne with palm branches in their hands and crying out very loudly, salvation belongs to our God. What do you mean, our God? He's the Jews' God. No, no, no. God made a promise to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Peter is warning them what's coming. He's encouraging them. What should be an encouraging them, this is what God's going to do. But now verse 26, back to their reality, somewhere around A.D. 30, God, he's telling his Jewish audience, in the temple, God having raised up his servant. He's not even talking about the resurrection here. He's talking about having reared up and raised him up to power. God having raised up his servant, sent him to you first. He sent him to you, Israel. He sent him to you first. You're in the number one seat. You're in the privileged seat. You're blessed. You've got the covenants, the prophets. You have these promises. He sent him to you first. First tells me there's a what? Going to be a second and others and others. But he sent him to you first to bless you by turning every, not just blotting out your sins. Sins are blotted out. That's awesome. But he's going to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So it's not just salvation from hell. It's You get a new address. You're not going to live anymore in sin. I'm going to turn you out of sin. And you're going to come into a relationship with me. Well, there's Peter's sermon in the temple in Acts chapter 3. Let's notice a few things this morning. Look back at verse 17. You've killed the holy and righteous one. You killed the author of life. Pilate wanted to release him. You wouldn't let it happen. And now, brothers, I know that You acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. Number one this morning, notice there's a major difference in sins. A major difference in sins. I want to propose this to you this morning. A major difference in sins. First of all, does Peter even have the right? Is Peter even accurate telling these Jews that I know that you acted in ignorance? You didn't know what? Is he right? Yes, Does this not match? Do you remember the prayer of the Lord at the cross? What did Jesus pray? Which one of the seven sayings did he say over and over? Father, forgive them. Why? They know not what they're doing. Some may apply that only to the Roman soldiers at the cross, but I believe it goes further than that. None of them know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. And God answers that prayer here with this message. This matches what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 8, when he says, If the rulers of this, of this age had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't understand. So this is very consistent with the New Testament. So now Peter says, Hey, you sinned and it was awful, but you didn't know any. You didn't know what you were doing. So I want to ask you this morning, are there categories of sin? Are there categories of sin? I won't go into all the background of my 
history and the types of people I've hung around and, and lived the Christian life with and been taught with. But I can share with you my perspective that if I were to take the whole of them and we were going to put sin in categories, we would probably safely put sin in these categories. We're going to put like the worst. These are the worst. We're going to put over there extremely violent. I mean like really hurting people. I mean like damaging, like really, and murder. We would agree with that, right? We're going to put that over in. That's, 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 that's got to be in the category of the worst stuff. And can I just invite you to go mentally? What's another category of sin that may have three or four or five types of it? But we mentally, because we're good church-going folk, right? What else do we put in this category with murder and violence? We put what category of sin? Sexual sins, right? That's, isn't that what we do? So over here, we got the word. And these, by the way, these are in big font. And they're bold, right? All caps. We got murder and violence. You know, not just, you didn't just rob the person. You hit him with a baseball bat in the back of the head. You nearly killed him. Or you did kill him. Or you're a serial killer. And over here, this person, they didn't just commit fornication. They fornicate often, man. These are like fornicators and adulterers. And the homosexuals and those that have bestiality. This is a real thing. Bestiality. That's, that's that category. You say, well, Jeff, what's your point? Those got to be on over there, don't they? Well, sure. They're horrible. What we got to be careful, though, is that we tend to put things like worrying. What? Worrying. You know, worrying. Over here, we got the worrying, gossiping. You know how you ever met somebody you can't have a 10-minute conversation with? You can't have a 6-minute conversation, but that they veer over, and they just got to start talking. They might even be telling the truth, but no business talking about that thing over there. Can't help it. But that, that's, God understands. We got to communicate. Anger. Slamming, slapping, verbal abuse, throwing things, stomping around, irritable. Whoa, 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 but we defend that because, hey, I'm, and we name some nationality from Europe or something. That's my, my bloodline. Or if you were raised, this is how we were raised in my family. That's why I get so angry. Or if you had to live with, the, and you had to work with the buffoons I work with, you'd be angry too. I can't help it. Yeah, we like to defend ourselves. So over here we have small font, worry and anger and gossip and, and discontent and pride in the forms of bragging. And just being unthankful, like literally living day after day and never even stopping to thank God for anything. Living unloving, judgmental toward other people, specifically those over there. We love to put categories of sin. Our categories of sin. You say, Jeff... Are there no categories of sin? Now, I want to be honest. I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. Let's be clear. In a moment, you'll write it down. Just hear it first. Some sin is more damaging. Here we have somebody that hates. This person hates someone, and this person hated someone so much they murdered them. We don't need to read Matthew 5 and what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount come to the conclusion, well, anger and hatred in the heart, you've already committed murder, might as well go kill them. Wrong answer. Some sin's more damaging. This is bad. 
yeah, this is more damaging. Here's one. This person just lusts all the time. They lust for someone. That person is the object of their lust. This one has an object of their lust, and they sleep with them. And it's fornication or adultery. We ought not again read Matthew 5 and think, well, if we, Jesus says, if you look with a woman with, in, with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So if I'm going to be a, in God's courtroom have adultery in my heart, I might as well at least enjoy the act. Nope, some sin's more damaging. Write this down. But all sin is serious. And God doesn't really put categories of sin necessarily like we do. Here's what God puts them. God distinguishes categories of sin in categories of intentional and ignorant Intentional sin and ignorant sin. As you're writing that, I'm thinking about a verse in James chapter 4, verse 17. I'm not going to flip there. I just haven't memorized. So I'll, I'll, I'll blend. I'll, I'll um, ESVFI the KJV. <laughs> That's uh, anyway. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, To him it is sin. Therefore, to him who knows. Remember, we're talking about ignorant sin and intentional sin. To him that knows to do good but doesn't do it. Help me. I want your feedback. What category of sin are we? It starts with an O. What category of sin are we looking at when we know to do good but we don't do it? Omission. That's the one we really put in. I mean, that's in the fine print. You need to. You need the magnifying glass. You need strong reading glasses to see the sins of omission in some of our minds. Oh, yeah, what I don't do. So in this room, I'll just pick a category. In this room, there's no doubt. I guarantee you, there's some, for real, somebody's watching online. Somebody here this morning, they don't know that when God blesses them financially with some stream of income, they should give back to the Lord. They don't even know that. They're in the room. They've never really studied, or some assume that's only Old Testament. That's only an Old Testament practice. But then there's others in the room who know that they have a stream of income and know they should be giving to the Lord. They know what is right, but they just choose not going to do it. Both are wrong. Just because the one doesn't know it doesn't make it okay. But the other one, in God's eyes, is more wrong. Throw another verse at you. Psalm 66, 18. The psalmist said, Hear it. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, if I had cherished iniquity, in other words, I see it, I know it's there, but I protect it. I like this specific sin. I like this. This is my favorite sin. He says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So here's what we got. We got this person who genuinely, they want a relationship with God. I want to talk to God. I want to pray. But I don't want to give up this sin. I'm going to tell you right now. Known sin in our life is the prayer killer. It's the prayer killer. You may be wondering like, why does it seem like when I pray I'm just talking to the ceiling? I'm just talking to myself. I'm just going through rote steps. It's not real. There's There's no life in it. Do you have known sin that you're just cherishing? It's the prayer killer. Now contrast what I just read out of James in Psalm 66 to Psalm 19. Listen to this one. Psalm 19, 12, the psalmist says, Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Now go with me here, it's important. The psalmist, declare me innocent. In there, there's a confession and a request. 
Again, it's not worded, not worded exactly this way, but in essence what the psalmist is saying, Lord, please forgive me, restore. Would you do what it takes to declare me innocent from those sins that I don't even know that I've committed? And right before that it asks, what person can really discern their errors? What are your errors? What are your, which, which of your beliefs are the wrong ones? Which of your beliefs, the things you hold core, which ones are your, of your core beliefs are erroneous? You're like, none of mine are. Well, of course none of yours are because that's what you believe right now. Do you know who wrote Psalm 19? Take a shot, you'll probably get it. David. David is saying, Lord, I know I've got them. Will you declare me innocent from my hidden faults? Write this down. We this morning no doubt have sins in our lives that we're unaware of. All of us in here, we have sins. And you said, Jeff, I don't. I confess my sin. Well, praise the Lord. There's things in your life that the Lord has not yet dealt with you on. He's dealt with other things. And graciously, he's not yet dealt and drilled down on these other things. We all have them. You say, Jeff, what are yours? I don't know. Well, actually, I'm going to share one. We all have sins that are unknown, that we're unaware of. They're still sins. They're still sins. But our ignorance, verse 17, actually mitigates our guilt. Notice I'm not saying our ignorance removes the guilt. It lessens our guilt. It mitigates our guilt. I've shared with you guys many times when I was growing up, you would not catch me saying, oh, my God. Oh, my God, I I wasn't going to do that. I've been taught that's wrong. But you know what I would do? Good Lord. Oh, my Lord. Biblically, the one that I would do is actually worse than the one that I wouldn't do, and I didn't even realize it until finally, I don't even know who, somebody started teaching on it, and it rang true, and the Lord rid my life of that. We've all got them. And don't just minimize them. I've had something. It's been in my life. It's a nasty habit. It's going to take the grace of God. It really is a habit. The Lord used someone that's even here this morning to help me this week to see it again. And I hope the Lord just continues to show it to me again till he rids my life of it. I have a nasty habit of interrupting people while they're talking. And it's not funny. I'll be talking with someone. I'm not talking about somebody that drones on and on and I never get a word in. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when we're trying to have a conversation. And I've got a great point to make. And I'll just cut them off. It's okay. I can take it. That, what I just described, is a branch of what big parent sin, the first sin that was ever committed. What is what I've been doing? It's a branch off of what big sin? Pride. It's okay. You got pride, brother. I know. I do. And it's an unloving heart. What it is, it's saying, hey, what I've gotten ready to say is way more important than what you've got to say, and I don't want to, you just need to hold it because I'm getting ready. And I hope the Lord will rid that out of my life. Let me give you one more verse out of Psalms in this, and we'll move to verse 18. I told you we would linger a little while in 17, 18, and 19. 
The same psalm in, in Psalm 19 where David writes in verse 12, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Listen to this carefully. He writes, keep your servant from presumptuous sin. Lord, forgive me of those things I don't even know what they are. Forgive me of those. Impatience, you're not dealt with me those things, with those things yet. But Lord, keep me from presumptuous sins. Again, I'm going to go back to my rearing. King James had in the Old Testament a phrase. It was called sin with a high hand. So what's sin with a high hand? Here's sin with a high hand. Pay attention. Sin with a high hand is when you know it's wrong. That activity, I know it is sinful, but I really want to do it. And so we're going to do it with this attitude. Again, Old Testament. I've got plenty of animals out there, kind of wealthy. And so I've got some, some sheep that are about a year old male. They're spotless and they have no blemishes. And so I'm going to go ahead and do this. And I know if I just take them down there, they'll die. I, I hate it for them. I'm going to take them down to the temple and they're going to die to make up. Because I do want to have a relationship with God. It's a presumptuous sin. Y'all do know the New Testament equivalent of that, right? I know this is sin. I want to have a relationship with God. I'm going to do this thing. And when it's over, I'll just claim what? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, Lord, I know the other day. I know a few hours ago, a few minutes ago. But now that I'm past that, I confess. Now, listen carefully. God is way more merciful than we ever think he is. But he despises presumptuous sin, despises it. So write this down. Sin, ignorant sin is bad enough, but worse than committing sin is to commit sin after having planned on doing it. After having planned to do it. I used to tell my students when I taught high school, listen, if you're planning, because you know your mom and dad's going to be gone for a little while, or if you're planning Friday night or you're planning after school or you're planning fourth period to do this, you're making plans, you're going to cheat on a test. If you're planning to sin, you're already in sin. You're not going to get in sin when you get there. You're already in sin. So guys, I got, before I leave this point, i got to ask you this morning, check your own heart. Do you have right now any known sins of omission where you know, I know I should be doing that, and I'm not doing it. Do you have any known sins? Then you can't claim ignorance. Do you have any known sins? You're like, I am doing this thing. I'm in it. I have done it. I haven't gotten right with the Lord. Or I'm going to do it this afternoon. I plan on doing it this week. And you're just living in sin. You need to get that right with the Lord. And pay attention when we get to the second point. What's the right response when God reveals our sin? Look at verse 18. Let's go quickly. Verse 18. But what God foretold, see what you did, you acted in ignorance, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. He thus fulfilled. Did you, did you feel that? Hey, men of Israel, you missed it. You were ignorant, but you missed it. It was there all the God wrote it. He, he foretold it in advance. You didn't miss a little passage about the Christ would suffer. You didn't miss just one Old Testament prophet. You missed it over and over and over. Somehow it just, hey, men of Israel, you know all those passages that our rabbis struggle to explain to us about there's going to be this coming servant of God who's going to suffer violently at the hands of wicked men? You know those passages they can't ever explain? Yeah, well, guess what? It's been fulfilled. Jesus is the, the servant of God, and you're the wicked men. You're it. You're it. You've done it. This... Scares me. I'm going to tell you why. 
These people studied their Bible every Saturday, 52 times a week, and went home and thought about it. And they, they didn't have a Bible like I do, didn't have copies of it. It was down at the synagogue. But, man, they studied the Bible all the time. They were very diligent, and they missed it. And here's what scares me. We can be disciplined in our Bible study and reading and studying the Bible. But if God doesn't illuminate the pages and make the truth jump out at us, we, we can flat out miss it. That's how ignorant mankind is left to themselves. That's how ignorant I am, left to myself. That's what's going to happen. Thankfully, we have the Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian, literally living inside of you. What a major advantage. I told you I wanted to make a... A point out of verse 18. I know you acted in ignorance, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So I want to ask you, wait a minute. He fulfilled. He's just nailed them to the wall, and now he says God fulfilled. So who caused the death of Christ? Again, here, I'm not going down this road. Don't have time. What, four or five weeks ago, we dug deep into chapter 2, verse number 22 and 23. And what we learned is there is a predetermined plan of God. There is a predetermined, your life is predetermined. And it's going to happen that way. So who's responsible? Are these people who did this ignorantly, who crucified the Lord, are they responsible for his death or is God? And here's what we learn. There is this mysterious union, and we can't explain it all, of God's sovereignty. God is sovereign over all things, causing things, and yet there's this responsibility of mankind where even if God ordained it, predicted it, set up circumstances, they're still responsible, and we're still responsible for our sin. And we may hear that thing. How can we be responsible if it was foreordained of God? Listen carefully. Here's how I would answer that. God, for, who's responsible for Jesus' death? God foreordained in eternity past to make use of mankind's wicked depravity. And he does it in a way that kept him from sinning, but also made sure that his son's death happened because it was necessary to pay for sin. There's no other way to pay for sin unless this were to happen. Write this down. Verse number 18. He thus fulfilled. I believe the word thus means God fulfilled the prophecies by your ignorance. God fulfilled it by your ignorance. You did it. God used your ignorance to pull it off. Say, Jeff, I still don't understand what that means. It's as though Peter is telling his audience, God had to keep you blind about the true identity of his son because his son has to die on the cross to pay for sins or we all go to hell. This had to happen, but had God showed you clearly who this man Jesus is, could you imagine if the Jews knew that Jesus was their Messiah and they accepted him and he told them and everybody's worshiping him? Could you imagine that scene? And they're all loving him and then he says this, hey guys, this has been great. Listen, you guys need to crucify me. What? No, no. world domination, kingdom. No, no, no. Sin's got to be paid for it. I, I know you're not going to want to do it, but you guys, you got to beat me and you got to crucify me. I'm telling you, the Jews would have said, no. Do what I'm telling you. It no, that will never. Anybody who ever tries to do that, we will fight them and kill them. They would never do it. So here's what God did. I got to keep you in the dark to make sure that you do it. But you will do it. And you will be responsible for that sin. Write this down. God gave 300 prophecies. And I'm just to be honest with you. 
they were veiled. God gave 300 prophecies that were veiled enough so that wicked men would do their part. Wicked men would fulfill their part unknowingly because the prophecies were veiled enough. But the prophecies, 300 prophecies, were clear enough so that after the fact, looking back, they proved that this man Jesus really is the Christ. And so that's what we now have on this side of the cross. They had veiled prophecies, and now we see them unveiled and clear. And like, could you not see how Jesus was fulfilling all of these things? Granted, it wasn't just one clear document that just laid out the exact time and all that would happen, but you had to piece it together. Your rabbi struggled with these things. Could you not see yourselves checking them off one by one? No, they they had no idea. They just blindly are fulfilling them, and God is orchestrating it using man's depravity. So I propose to you, it was not an accident that Jesus was, this man Jesus, that's his human name. It's not an accident this man Jesus was a descendant of Abraham. Abraham had how many sons? Uh-oh, trick question. I thought I heard it over here. Eight. It's not an accident that he was Abraham's descendant through which son? Abraham, Isaac. Isaac has how many sons? This was not a trick question. Two. It's not an accident that Jesus is a descendant of Jacob. Jacob has how many sons? Twelve. Not an accident that he's the son of, that Jesus is a descendant of. Which son of Jacob? Judah. Not Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Naphtali, Dan, Gad. Although, no. Judah. Not an, you say, well, Jeff, there's a lot of people fit these categories still. A lot of people. I know. But keep going down the line of Judah and all those, no doubt, hundreds of thousands. It's not an accident that Jesus is a descendant of Jesse, who also has how many sons? Think I heard it again. Eight. And who's the eighth son? David. And so Jesus, not by accident, is a descendant of David. It's not an accident Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He said, well, hang on, Jeff, there's still lots of people, no doubt, because it was the city of David that would have been descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Jesse, David, born in Bethlehem. There's probably more than that, yes, but did you see what it took to get him to be born there? The Roman Caesar had to wake up in the middle of the night. I want a new tax and to pull the tax off. We're going to do this big census, make everybody go back. And just in time, because they didn't live there, here comes Mary and Joseph, just in time for him to be born. And then King Herod starts killing babies trying to find and kill this promised Messiah. And where does Jesus' parents flee from? Again, he can't fake this. He can't force this. Where did they flee? What country? They fled down to Egypt. That's not an accident. That's foretold. And then when they come back to Israel, of all the towns and places we could live, Nazareth sounds good. Let's go back to Nazareth. Not an accident. And he just happened to be able to heal people. Of all, any, and all diseases. It is not an accident that he was betrayed. By what kind of person? A a friend. For how many? 30. Not 20, not 40, not 50, not 10, not 29, not 31. 30 pieces of? Not an accident. Wasn't gold. Wasn't dollar bills. Just Could they not even see? Hey, Jews, if you want to ensure that this man Jesus can never claim to be the Christ, give Judas a tip. Make it 35. Hey, you did such a good job. Here's 31. 
You just blew the whole thing. No. It's not an accident that he's crucified. His hands are pierced. His feet are pierced. He's crucified between criminals on each side. And when you're crucified, what happens to some of your bones? They come out of joint, not by accident. And when the other two guys have something happen to their bones, what did not happen to any of Jesus' bones? None of his bones were broken, not an accident. He's buried not in a mass grave like most crucifixion victims. He's buried in a tomb, a sealed off, single, only person in there. And then he gets out before corruption sets in on the fourth day. All of this is predicted and foretold in, in detail. Once you're on the other side of the cross and you can see it, write this down. God gave us messianic prophecies. Number one, to show his omniscience. Peter's playing on it. Hey, Israel, it was there. You didn't miss one. You didn't miss ten. You missed dozens and dozens. To show his omniscience, God knows all things in advance. To show, number two, his omnipotence. God can literally make. It's no risk saying what's going to happen. Boy, you're putting yourself out there. No, I know what's going to happen, and I can say I know what happened because I know it and I can make anything that I want to happen. And so God gave messianic prophecies to show his omnipotence, his power to make it happen. Number three, why did God give us this whole phenomenon of these 300 messianic prophecies that have come true? To show that this book is not just any book. To show and prove the inspiration of the scripture. This is the one and only reliable book. Not the Koran. Not the Book of Mormon. Not the Hindu Veda. This book right here is the words of God. And prophecy proves it. Validates it. No, why did he give prophecy? Number four. So that Messiah, when he does come would be absolutely unmistakable that anybody that has some faith, anybody with some faith can see Jesus is the Messiah. He lines up with the prophecies. As you're writing that quickly, I'm going to move on to the second thought. And you're going to hit, get hit with some notes quickly here for time's sake. Notice number two this morning. The proper response to all sin. So they were ignorant. What's the proper response to all sin? You see it in verse number 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back. Repent, therefore, and turn back. Repent, therefore. Hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, Peter, hang on. You just said we didn't know what we were doing. Again, write that one quickly because we're moving on. Ignorance and sin, sins committed in ignorance, are not automatically forgiven. Well, God knows that I didn't. No, they're not automatically forgiven. It's still sin. The fact that these people, these Jews that were responsible in their day for crucifying the Lord, the fact that they were ignorant, listen to this, and even that God in His mercy brought about such good out of their act of ignorance, God used it to save all who, put, who will put their faith and trust in Christ None of that. Again, you're ignorant and God brought good from it. That still does not remove the guilt. Catch that. It does not remove the guilt, nor does it remove the need to confess. You say, but I didn't even know it was wrong. When you do, now that you do, you got to confess because ignorant sins are not automatically forgiven. So, let me, let me qualify. I know you're writing that, and thank you for writing so quickly. Now we're ready to move forward again. Ignorance. My ignorance in sin and yours 
It mitigates the guilt. It lessens the guilt, but it does not remove the guilt. It does not remove the guilt. So, Jeff, what does that mean? Kind of, can you bring that down? Do y'all know that the Bible talks about degrees of judgment? You ever read that? That's a true theological lesson in Scripture. There are degrees of judgment. There are going to be degrees of punishment eternally. Do you remember when we went through Matthew, those of you that were here with us, do you remember this? Jesus talked to two cities. Hey, Bethsaida, Chorazin. So here's Bethsaida and Chorazin. Numbering sins that go against the Bible, they look pretty good compared to these other two cities called Tyre and Sidon that were outside of Israel. And they would no doubt look down their nose. Bethsaida and Chorazin would look down their nose at Tyre and Sidon. But Jesus says, because of all that you've seen and all the light that you've been given and that you've resisted, on the judgment day, it's going to be better for for Tyre and Sidon than it is for you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. And do you all remember the one that was going to get it even worse than that? Capernaum. And you, Capernaum. This, when we talked through Matthew, it was, most of our time was spent all around Capernaum. These people heard Jesus teaching and preaching and saw his miracles over and over. Do you know what Jesus taught? That on the day of judgment, it's going to be better, not good. It's not going to be good. It's going to be horrible for Sodom and Gomorrah. But it's going to be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for Capernaum. Because you had so much light. So once you get the light, what the Lord is saying, it's not enough to know how do you respond. You've got to repent. We must repent. Once God shows us that the, the action that we've been not doing or doing, now there's only one response, and that's to repent. So let me review quickly. This is a real fact. There are some people, listen carefully, they don't even know gossiping is wrong. And if they did, they've heard it said. I promise you, this is true. It's in this room. They don't even know when they do it. They're probably thinking, man, that sounds like somebody ought to. Jeff's doubling down on that. He's talked about that again two times in like 20 minutes. I bet there's somebody here who probably should see if they have gossip in their life. I'm going to get on the phone tomorrow and see who has this sin. (laughs) I mean, for real, there are people... Who don't, they don't even know that lusting is sin. They honestly just lust all the time and they don't realize. And in their thought, I never touched her. I never touched her. She's married, man, I, I, I wouldn't do that. But they just lust all the time, position themselves where they can kind of see, have thoughts. Once you know it's wrong, how do you respond? Talked to a man recently, could not get him to understand that coveting is sin. Do we understand being discontent is sin, prayerlessness is sin, thanklessness is sin. But once it's known, what do we do with it? Look at verse 19 quickly. Repent, therefore, and turn back. Repent. Y'all help me out. It's not been that long since we've been on this word. The word repent means to have a deep Listen, deep, thorough, what? Change of heart and mind. Does it lead to a changed life? Yes, going to write that in a moment. Listen, repentance, what, the, what, what Peter's saying is, 
men of Israel, you committed this sin. I've now revealed it to you. You need to have a whole change, a whole new stance, a whole new way of thinking. And remember how we usually, and I'm not going to have you write it again, we usually say that repentance, this whole new way of thinking, needs to affect three areas. Number one, our sin. Every person needs to come to a point in life where they realize my sin is way worse than I think it is. Number two, a new deep core change of thought and heart and a whole new way of thinking about myself. If I never sin again, I've already done enough. If I live perfectly, which you can't, if I live perfectly from now on, I cannot do enough good to earn my way to heaven. I'm just not good enough. Paul or Peter's audience need to learn being Jewish is not enough. It's not going to get you to heaven. You better repent of your sin. You better repent about yourself and you better repent about Jesus because you missed it totally. You better have a whole brand new way of thinking. Stop rejecting him. And then he says, turn back. Write this thought down. Peter's call to turn back reminds me of John the Baptist's call to produce fruits that match repentance. The fruits are not the repentance, but they're the fruit and the evidence of repentance. Peter's call to turn back shows that true repentance always leads to a changed life. Turn back. Hey, repent in your heart and your mind and let that result in turning back. Warren Wiersbe writes it this way. He says, repentance is much more than feeling sorry for your sins. He says, it's as the little Sunday school girl said, it means feeling sorry enough to quit. I feel real bad about it. How bad? You sorry enough to quit? All right, time out. If they were to repent of their sin against Jesus and recognize him as the Christ and turn to him, then what would happen? Oh, well, this is the good part. So now I, I get to stop yelling at you, and I get to yell at you differently, right? In a positive way. Look at verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back. Like, had this deep change toward a deep core view change about yourself and your sin and about Jesus. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That your sins may be blotted out. I don't know that anyone would preach on this uh, and knowingly skip a certain passage. Some of your minds are even going there, so don't just let your mind go there. Let's go there with our fingers. Colossians chapter 2. Would you look with me? Turn your Bible there. You're going to want to see it. Colossians chapter number 2. You need to repent and let your repentance be so sincere and genuine and deep that it causes you to turn back to God. Away from the sin. Yes, you've been going that way. You, you didn't even know it. Didn't even know it was wrong. You've been going, okay, now that you know, turn to God and leave the sin in the past. Well, what will happen? Your sins will get blotted out. Colossians chapter 2, look at verse 13. This is a great two verses. I'm just going to skim it. Look at it. And you, this is a lot of us in the room right now. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Dead means Separated. You were separated from God. Again, where, this is us beforehand. We're over here wallowing and living in our deadness and trespasses, and we're just continually going further and further away from God. That's what was going on before. But now Peter's writing, Paul's writing to Christians. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, away from God. But now God made alive together. God's taken you away from there, brought you over where he is. God has made you alive together with him. How did he do this? 
I thought sin is like a big problem. It is, but he's, he's, he's brought you together alive with him, having forgiven us our trespasses. Having forgiven us. So the sin has been removed. He's forgiven. Now, how does he forgive? Does God just wave the magic wand and you are forgiven? You're forgiven there. Or, I forgive you. I just say the magic words. I'm the boss. I forgive you. I know that you sinned. And some of you did it on purpose. Some of you didn't even know what you're doing. You know what? I'm just going to put it all away. I know you, I said you have to die and you have to go to hell. But I take it back. I was lying. Okay? You get in. Nope. It's got to be based on something, so it's based on verse 14. How does he forgive us of our trespasses? By canceling the record of debt. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demand. Hear that again. How does he forgive us? By canceling, we're told over here in Acts chapter 3, Peter says, he'll blot out your sins. Here it's worded this way. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal... Here's all the evidence against us in each line of sin in God's courtroom has a legal demand that goes with it, punishment. But this he set aside, nailing it to his cross. Hey, Israel, if you'll repent and turn back to Christ, he'll blot out your sins. What you've done is horrible. You did this ignorantly. You need to repent. And when you do, he'll blot it out. I brought a prop here with me this morning. Could you imagine? Here's this book. You see this? It's, it's pretty thick. You see all this? Could you imagine... If this was the record of your sins, and they're just, you know the Bible talks about there are books being kept on every one of us, every person, and the books are going to be open on the day of judgment for lost people. And, it's, and you say, that takes a long time. Time is gone. We're in eternity at that point. One by one, in front of Jesus, be brought out of the torments of hell and standing on nothing not with anybody else huddled up, all by yourself, you're going to be brought, and there's all, and it's just one after another. But Peter says, if you'll repent, that God will blot out your sins. Write this down. To blot out, let me find it, the wording, Jesus' blood does not, watch, it's not like the blood of Christ smears it around or flows, right? Just in the ink runs. And, you know what? I can make out a few words, but blood of Christ has really smeared them around there. We can't really make it out. You get it. Barely. Barely. But you get in. Thank you, thank you, thank you. No. The blood of Christ does not merely smear our sinful record around where it can't be read. It removes it so completely that there's nothing left. We are made forensically. Some of you have been watching a little courtroom drama this week. Some of you are really sad it's over, you sick people. <laughs> Me too. I didn't watch it at all. I watched some. Anyway, we're morbid. <laughs> Why did I say that? All right. Somebody may watch this five years from now. What's he talking about? Dad, don't worry about it. When the blood of Christ removes your sin, you're made forensically clean. 
You know what that means? There's no evidence. You know how that happens? How do you, how do you go from this just on and on and on? And some of our books are much thicker than the rest. You go from that to it's gone. Well, that happened to me in 1979. There is no evidence. You say, yeah, you, what about what you've done since 1979? 1 John, John 1.7 says, The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, even the ones we haven't even committed. That's pretty powerful. The powerful name of Christ, the powerful blood of Christ. There was an author of a song, and you know the song well. His name is Spafford. God got so overwhelmed with the thought of Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. You know what he wrote? He says, my sin. Now think about this. He writes, my sin. Oh, the bliss. Bliss means ecstasy. Like extreme joy. My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious. I had this, I had this glorious thought. My sin. Not in part. Lord, you're going to really forgive me of those? I'm going to forgive you of these. My sins, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more because he bore the whole thing. And the blood of Christ literally washes it all clean. And Spafford's reaction was, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. I don't carry any of it. It is all washed clean. How's that happen? When you repent and trust Christ, your record is removed. And then lastly this morning, you see a lot of verses. It's not that long, and I'll hit it quickly. Back to Acts chapter 3. Would you notice number 3 this morning? The kingdom is offered to Israel. I think this is really what's happening here. The kingdom is offered to Israel. Look at verse 20. Back up to verse 19. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Do you see it? Hey. You know what's refreshing? Is when you're living through life and you have a body that's alive. And you have a soul that's awake and aware. But your spirit is dead like we were all born. stillborn spiritually. And then God saves you. He washed away your sin. And there's this thing called regeneration. And your spirit all of a sudden comes to life. And you have whole new appetites and ways of thinking. You're a whole new creature. That's refreshing. I'll tell you what's refreshing is when you have this new relationship with God. And it's real and it's genuine. In this life, it's like that's refreshing. I'm going to propose to you that's not what Peter's talking about. He says it's not. But it is refreshing. That's great. What he's actually referring to here, if you want to write it down in verse number 20, Peter's talking about the millennial kingdom. This is what's going to be refreshing. And no other nation is going to find the millennial kingdom as refreshing as the nation of Israel. Hey, men of Israel, if you'll repent about what you've done to Christ and turn to Him, accept Him as the Christ, as the Lord, as your Savior, these things will start happening and a time of refreshing will come. One author wrote that no nation has been so ill-treated as the nation of Israel. Now listen, listen, I understand. Listen carefully. I know, I know the culture, and some are not going to agree with this, but if you'll study history, here's what you'll find. No nation has been treated as bad as the nation of Israel. 400 years of slavery in Egypt. 400. 
400 years. They get out of there. They go into the promised land. They live there for a while, and then they start sinning. And what does God allow to happen? The Assyrians conquer them and carry them away and put them in exile, basically over in Iraq. And then the Babylonians come, and they take the rest, some others of them and take them further into Iraq and even now spilling over into Iran. And so the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. And then the Persians, thankfully, defeated the Babylonians, and the Persians basically treated the Jews better and allowed them to start going home. But then the Greeks conquered the, per- the Persians. And the Greeks ruled over the Jews roughly, mistreated them and persecuted them. And then the Romans conquered the Greeks. And the Romans kind of had this facade of a peace for a while called Pax Romana. But ultimately in AD 70, the Romans are going to kill, are going to kill a million Jews. Just going to slaughter a million Jews. And then the Turks are going to come after that. And they're going to oppress and persecute the Jews. And it keeps going up and down, up and down. We finally get down to the 1900s, 1930s and 40s, which you know about. Six million is the estimation. Six million Jews put to death by the Nazi regime in Europe and Germany. And then that's been followed by Israel. Here they have their land. They can never rest because all around them, the Arab nations around them want them removed. I'll tell you, when Millennial Kingdom comes, it's going to be a nice break for Israel. They long for it. Well, it's on the table. But it's on the table for us, too. Here's what I find. Even when life is good, life is a struggle. Do you find that? It's a struggle. I find that if, if I try to stay where the Bible is, the longer I live, I'm getting more and more disconnected from this world. It's a struggle. I struggle with my own sin nature. I talked about that a while ago. It's a struggle. I str- we all struggle. Trials, tribulation, pain, sorrow, losses. It's a struggle. But don't you listen. If, some of you, if there's somebody here this morning, this is the main thing you need to get, and I can't drill down, all I would do is tell you to go home, and you just think about the truth of these verses. Verse number 20, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for, rest, for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. The holy prophets predicted two main things. The Christ is going to come and suffer. And then, oh, by the way, there's going to be this time of refreshing and restoration. It's coming. This one has already happened, which tells me when the Bible says this is going to happen, it's going to happen. Ladies and gentlemen, refreshing is coming. Restoration is coming. Romans 8 talks about it. Revelation 21, we heard about it this morning. It is coming, and it is tied to the coming of the Messiah. And you may be sitting here this morning thinking, now, Jeff, that is what I want. What's the holdup? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 20. You see the word, actually look at 19 and 20. You got your Bible? Hang in there with me. You got your Bible open? Look at uh, 19 and 20. Do you see the word that three times in there? Do you see it? Verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back. That your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may sin. Write this down. The word that that is used three times in verses 19 and 20 actually means so that. It means so that. Do this so that this, and then this, and then this. It's literally we're talking about dominoes. Theologically, what this means is when this first domino falls... 
then the next one's going to fall, and the next one's going to fall, and the next one. But it's all contingent on that. You say, Jeff, I want that refreshing. I want that restoration. This world is groaning. This world is under a curse. I want to see this world not under a curse. I want to live where I don't fight sin, and I don't love, live among people who are fighting sin. What's the holdup? Verse 20. I'm sorry, verse 19 is the holdup. Write this thought. When Israel repents of their sin of rejecting Jesus as the Christ, three things are going to happen. God will blot out their individual sins. God will send Jesus, the Christ, back to earth. I believe first he will come hover above the earth and not actually touch down. God will blot out their sins and iniquities. God will send Jesus Christ and then his presence coming actually ushers in the time of refreshing that is coming. So you say, Jeff, let me, let's reduce the sauce. What is the holdup to this whole refreshing restoration millennial kingdom that's coming? It's the Jews accepting Jesus as the Christ. That's the holdup. When they do, get ready, these things are going to happen. That's the holdup. But as long as Israel, I'm talking about as a nation, as a whole, I'm talk, not talking about individual Jews who put their faith in Christ. I'm saying the nation of Israel as a whole, as long as they do not look for a Messiah or as long as they are looking for a different Messiah than Christ, it's not happening. And that's why verse 21 says, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth. Heaven has to keep In other words, Peter says he's going to stay in heaven until you do this. For those of you that want to dig deeper in verse 21, I'm going to throw one thing out and I'm hitting verse 22 quickly and then we're coming right down the home stretch. Verse 21, raise your hand. I know you're writing a note, but could you pause for a moment? If this fits you, have you ever heard of a doctrine called transubstantiation? Raise your hand if you've ever heard of that. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of consubstantiation. It's similar, it's less known. Transubstantiation is this false doctrine that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, that that bread and that cup of juice or wine, whatever it is you use, it actually becomes the actual body and blood of Christ. It's transformed. It's not just symbolic. This bread becomes the body of Jesus, and this cup becomes the blood of Jesus. Transubstantiation. And consubstantiation is similar, but it's like, no, the elements remain but the actual body and blood of Christ come alongside. Well, no, this text tells me that the physical body of Christ is remaining in heaven until it's the time for the rest, time of restoration and refreshing. And so that does not line up with transit. And oh, by the way, the Mormons teach that Jesus came to the Americas. Wrong. That would make this passage untrue. So if you go home and read the Book of Mormon, uh, don't. Read more Bible. Look at verse 22 quickly. Peter, you got an example of some of these prophecies? Yeah, Moses. Y'all remember this. In fact, look at verse 22. I'm not going to, we're not going to turn to Deuteronomy. Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And they were looking. To their credit, the Jews in Jesus' day were looking for the prophet. Do y'all remember the scene? Jesus is with his disciples and they're way up north and the Lord says, Hey guys, fellas, who do people say that I am? Well, Lord, some people. 
they're wacko. They think you're John the Baptist come back to life. I don't know where they were down when they saw John the Baptist actually baptize you. You can't be the same person. Some people think that. What else? Some people think you're Elijah. What else? Some people think you're Jeremiah. What else? Some people think you're the prophet. They think you're the prophet. Well, he is the prophet. What the Jews didn't understand is the prophet was also the Christ. So they're looking. Who is this prophet? Some thought John the Baptist was the prophet. He's not. Jesus is the prophet. I'm going to fly through this. I want you to listen carefully. Stuart Custer offers following several ways. How, how is Jesus like Moses? There's this one coming. Moses said, and Moses is a true prophet. It really happened. He's going to be like me. You ought to be looking for him. When he comes, you need to listen. Custer offers ways that Jesus was like Moses. Number one, both were born to poor parents under a tyrant's rule. Two, both were preserved from death in their infancy while other babies were slain. Number three, both spent many years in humble toil. Humble, out of the way, not limelight, just toil working. Moses as a shepherd, Jesus as a carpenter. Both demonstrated their calling by performing miracles. Both fasted 40 days in a wilderness. Both rejected the easy way. Moses could have ridden the coattails of being Pharaoh's grandson, but he didn't. Jesus had an offer from Satan, all the kingdoms of the world, if you'll just do this. Jesus rejected the easy way. Both made the sea obey them. Moses the Red Sea, Jesus the Sea of Galilee. Both of their faces shone like no other two human beings has ever shown and lighted up in the history of the world. Moses on Mount Sinai and Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Both fed thousands miraculously, one with manna, the other with loaves and fish. Both were rejected by their own people, the nation of Israel. Both are true prophets because God spoke through them. Both are the only two divinely authorized lawgivers in the history of the world. You need to look for one. He's going to be like me. And when he comes, you better listen to him. Look at verse 25. They're excited. These kids are very excited about verse 22. Look at verse 22. I'm sorry, 25. Peter tells his audience, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In this room, there are probably some people who have a very negative view toward Jews. Don't. They're God's people. You too are blind until God opens your eyes. We are no better. Our sins nailed Christ to the cross. So when I say that, what I'm about to say, some people get a little bit irritated. But it's been a fact. Here's a fact. As a whole, do you know that Jewish people have a blessing on them from God? And when they, go into certain, when they go into nations, if those nations treat them well, do you know what happens? Those nations start flourishing and being blessed. They're smart. They're real smart. They have a gift. But that's not what this verse is talking about. You see it? You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. This is not talking about, Abraham, your people are just going to be so gifted and smart and talented, and they're going to help the economies of all these nations. They're just going to be a blessing. No, do y'all write this down. Both Jesus and Paul both taught about this passage back in Genesis, grammatically, that the word offspring, again, seed in the King James, isn't just talking about all the Jews going around the world being a blessing wherever they go. It's talking about the word offspring is 
a single, one single seed, one single offspring. Who is this single seed? The single offspring is the Christ, through the Christ, this one descendant. Not just all your descendants being a blessing, Abraham. There's this one that's going to come, and he's going to be a blessing. And he, what is this blessing? What is this great blessing in verse number 25? Is it economic blessings? Oh, that's included, but it's far more than that. Write it down. The blessing is eternal life for all people who will put their faith and trust in a Jew. All the blessings of God come to you through a Jew. His name is Jesus. And you may say, I've never thought of it like that, and I don't like to think of it that way. Well, Get over it. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through one of your descendants, Abraham. And God doesn't lie, and it has happened. And Revelation 7 proves. Last two thoughts, quickly. Uh, Who's in my booth right now? I'm going to reverse the order. I'm not going to, I'm going to go to the verse second. I think there's one more note. I'm going to go to that. So here's the offer of the kingdom. Hey, Israel, if you'll repent and turn, this is going to happen. He's going to forgive your individual sin. He's going to send back Christ, and the times of refreshing will come. You say, well, what did they do? I hope you didn't ask that, because we're, we're here right now, and this is not the millennial kingdom if you haven't figured that out. So they didn't. F.F. Bruce writes the following. Did you write this note? So Peter's audience was the very first generation of Jews to ever be offered the kingdom. F.F. Bruce writes, while many, and I've provided the word Jews, while many Jews did respond to this call in the earliest days of the church, they remained a minority. A few did. In fact, we're going to get to chapter 4, Lord willing, next week, and we're going to see that the number of the men in the Jerusalem church, the number of Jewish males is up to 5,000. That's got to be a lot. That's a minority. Praise the Lord for that remnant. Would you finish with me this morning over in Romans 11? Just read it. Romans 11. So a remnant of Jews have repented and put their faith in Christ. But most have not. The national stance is that they reject Jesus. You say, so Jeff, hang on. What percentage do you think? This is a good question. What percentage of Jews have to accept Jesus as their Messiah, Christ, Lord and Savior before these times of refreshing come in? What percentage have to do this? A hundred percent. Well, then it's never going to... Oh, yes, it will. Look at verse number 11. I'm sorry, chapter 11, verse 25. Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Talking, Paul writing to us Gentiles. He says, lest you be wise on your own side. I do not want you to be unaware, ignorant. Hey, we don't want to be ignorant of this mystery. Brothers and sisters. Hey, brothers and sisters in Christ. I want you to know something. Verse 25, Paul says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Their, blind, their eyes are blinded still. They read the Bible, but they've got scales. They still don't see it, even though we got the New Testament. Tells them all these things that line up with these Old Testament passages. They still don't see it because a partial hardening has come upon Israel until, the word until tells us, it's not permanent. Until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Jeff, what's the holdup on the millennial kingdom? The Jews have to repent and accept Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ. The holdup on that is that the last Gentile to get in has not been saved yet. Go out and win them. You may win the last one. Let's go win them. 
So win these Gentiles so that what's going to happen with the Jews is going to happen. Verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet, chapter number 12, talks about the Jews... All the Jews who are alive at some point in the near future, we know it's going to be, I said near future, I believe near future. It's going to be at the end of the tribulation period. They're going to be bottled up. The Lord Jesus is going to come, not touch down in fulfillment of, so he's going to still be in the heavens, the atmosphere, over the Mount of Olives. And then Zechariah chapter 12 says, the Jews, all of them alive, will look on him whom they have pierced. Obviously, they're going to believe to the point they're going to mourn, and then they're going to turn to him and run to him, and that's going to be the act of repentance. And then Christ touches down on the Mount of Olives, and the mountain will split, and they will run to him, and then he'll go conquer the Antichrist armies. And when that's all done, there's a little bit of judgment that takes place from those left on the earth, and then we move on into the millennial kingdom. And I plan on being in a glorified body when that happens. And this is what we can expect. Peter said, you're sons of the prophets. You've got the advantage. You're sons of the covenant. The Messiah came to you first. You got offered salvation first. Don't blow it. Don't blow it. Israel, don't blow it. Now we're about to pray. If all we do is take away from this, boy, those Jews, boy, they really got the the best seat and they blew it. Have you ever thought how blessed you are? I mean, you. Do you know how I'm convinced? God doesn't love anybody more than he loves me. I'm convinced of it. And you should be thinking, I don't know, Jeff. He doesn't love you any more than he loves me. It's real clear in my life. You ought to be thinking that. I'm quite confident that he loves me as much as anybody that's ever existed other than his own son. But he sacrificed his son so that I would be said like, what? He really likes me. And he's blessed me and he's blessed you. How? It's easy to look. Well, those Jews had so many advantages. Don't blow it. Do you know that all of us in here, I dare say, we've all heard multiple clear presentations of the gospel. Do y'all know that we have a completed Bible? There are people... Thousands of years they had no Bible and some had a book floating around or a prophet living. And then they compiled the Old Testament. 2,000 years ago they had the Old Testament. And then the New Testament started because it took a long time. We have a completed Bible. But I mean we've got copies of it. I got a bunch. If you have a smartphone you can get the Bible on your phone for free. You got it in your own language. You all understand that didn't happen until like 500 years ago. People died for that. For the Bible to be put in English so those stupid English people can read the Bible. Aren't you thankful? We are blessed. We have the advantages. We know how to tell people how to go to heaven. Don't blow it. You have the information. You are sitting on the information how to tell your coworker, your family member. 
I don't have to tell them, go talk to that person. No, I can tell you this is how you go to heaven. I know it. You have a direct line of access to God, and he is pleading with you. I want to talk with you. We can pray, like really pray. We are the blessed people. I'm the blessed person. Don't blow it. Don't blow it. When God points out sin to you, how do you respond? What are you doing with the advantages God has given you? Take advantage of what God has given you. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. They did it thousands of years ago. Would you stand with me this morning? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Lord, I pray that you will just burn within me the change, the fruit, the evidence of repentance toward all sin in my life and toward whatever sin you may reveal in my life in the future, Lord. Help me have a a soft, tender heart. May my spirit be ready to recognize when your Holy Spirit prompts me or your word or some teacher or some brother, as just this last week, helps me to see my own sin problems. Lord, I'm relying upon you to keep pointing it out and help me to turn from it by the powerful name of Christ. Amen. Have a great week. Amen. Amen. Oh, what? Oh.